Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goob Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. William Lee. Before we get to my conversation with him, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Kettle One Botanical who helped make today's episode possible. The Goop team loves a good bar cart. We sell a beautiful one on the site, custom built by designer Chris Earle. And if you've come to one of our pop-ups or in Goop Health, you might have sampled some of the custom cocktails that go along with it, which are often made with Kettle One Botanical. Kettle One Botanical, for the uninitiated, is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no carbs and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. You can order your own Kettle One Botanical at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound. It's limitless. But we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dr. William Lee is a Harvard-trained physician and scientist and the author of Eat to Beat Disease. Today, we're talking about just that, the ways food and medicine can be used in tandem to boost our health. Lee has categorized foods according to their ability to activate our body's five health defense systems. Certain foods, which he calls grand slammers, have pretty powerful properties, which we'll discuss at length. And when it comes to the future of food and medicine, Lee believes in taking a look at the past to figure out how we can change our health systems for the better. If you can actually pick five foods every day that activate your health defense systems during the times you're encountering food, you are literally feeding your health. Okay, let's get to my chat with Dr. William Lee. Your book has been a massive success, although I think it's kind of predictable. Yeah, well, you know, I wrote this book because I felt it was a story to be told to the public as a doctor, you know, who is trained to to diagnose disease and prescribe medicines. I've been doing what I was trained to do, which is really not accessible to most people, but I started to realize that food is medicine is something Mm -hmm. that doesn't have to wait for the FDA. It really has immediacy. And Mm -hmm. so once I realized that the same science that is used to develop cutting edge medicines could be applied to what we eat Mm -hmm. and how our body responds to the food we put into it is just as sophisticated as some of the most fancy biotech that's out there. I basically said, you know, this is this has got to reach people and as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. When you when you do an inventory of history and you look back, and this is something I think about a lot, where did the schism come from? Because I feel like this is this is our medical lineage, right? It came from plants. It came from foods. We understood that certain things made us feel not good, and then we've certainly gone 
astray. And it's shocking to be, it's almost an affront to people now when you suggest that they're, they're willing to swallow medicine, which is theoretically like the same way you would ingest food. And they give that a lot of power, but they are almost offended by the idea of diet as having any real impact. Yeah, you know, you talk about the lineage of food and health. I think it's always been with us because, mm-hmm. you know, we started out hunter-gatherers, you know, grasping at straws or at little plant buds, you know, in the forest or on the ground. And, and intuitively, I think our bodies evolved to really get used to eating whatever we could mostly find, which is plants. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the big, I wouldn't call it a schism, I'd call it kind of like a big leap in a new direction maybe not always a good direction, is actually during agriculture, right? So mm-hmm. now you can not only create more plants and ultimately be able to distribute distribute them, but also you could actually cultivate animals. And instead of hunting the woolly mammoth, you know, you could actually start having, you know, entire populations of meat to actually eat. And even then, that was still kind of local. And I think people in most of the agricultural times historically still ate mostly plants. I think a big Two big things happened that led us to the kind of medical environment we're in now, which is largely pharmaceutical and diagnostics. First is actually, I think that after the industrialization of antibiotics, mm-hmm. uh, which is in the early 1900s, we began realizing that, hey, we could actually fight some of these big scourges of mankind, which is infection, always been a lethal thing in, in throughout human history, with medicines that could be made in factories. And you can sell it and somebody can make money and it could be institutionalized. And all of a sudden you had sort of pharmaceutical-based medicine. That is one direction that took us into the modern world. The other thing that I think happened is uh, that took us further away from our own roots was I think post-World War II when, at least in America, prosperity was seen as convenience and being able to get creative, cheap, processed foods. We suddenly, you know, when you combine that with the pharmaceutical world, we started to kind of go in opposite directions to where we started from. And so it's not so much the linear food and health. It's sort of where do we have this departure? Yeah. How did we get off, you know, how do we fall off our own wagon? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think, too, we, we became disconnected. I don't, like, definitely don't know the stats offhand, but we became disconnected disconnected from our food sources and where you might have had a kitchen garden or been responsible for producing some of your own food. Most of us don't even know what like a carrot top looks like. Right. Well, I mean, you know, uh, in many parts of the world today still, you know, whether you're talking about the Mediterranean or in Asia or in Latin America, even though you can buy packaged foods, people still prefer the tradition of actually growing and eating mm-hmm. what comes around them. And, and I think that's the other thing is that our tradition in America, started to become one uh, looking at low cost and convenience. That became the culture of food. And I think there's a uh, shift now where we're beginning to kind of go, you know, our future is to go backwards and we're beginning to, but we're beginning to have really modern ways to be able to look at the goodness of food. So it's much more than just eat green stuff. Right. Yeah. And I think that it's sort of, maybe it's in tandem or on a slightly different timeline, but what I've also observed is you know, in America, we're so good at acute medicine, right? Like we are establishing standards for for what it means to get good care if you have a, a heart attack or are in a car accident. And that we we sort of define healthcare 
by these acute events, and then it's like we go out and attack it, right? Whereas it seems like in chronic disease, which is what brings most of us to our knees, we've failed for a long time, maybe as consumers, maybe on both sides, but I think certainly on consumers, to recognize that it's a spectrum. And we typically don't get care also because I think of our system until we're sick, but that it takes a while. Like I, I know you talk about in your book the idea that if someone, if a 45-year-old woman just happens, gets hit by a car, if you were to do an autopsy, you'll find potentially many microcancers, right? That's that we're right. constantly keeping ourselves well until we can't do it anymore? Yeah, well, so, you know, the, the thing that's changing now that I think is very exciting is we're beginning to understand what health actually is. And health is a lot more than the absence of disease, which is yeah. what, you know, even a doctor would actually say if you were to ask somebody who was trained, you know, only a few years ago, what's health? That's the absence of disease. But we now know that health is actually the result of our body's hardwired health defense systems mm -hmm. that we were born with and that are firing in all cylinders until our very last breath. And it's because we have our, our own health defense systems, which is what I write about in my book, that we don't get sick more often. If you really think about it, right, we're continuously assaulted by our environment. Mm -hmm. Sunshine, ultraviolet radiation, why don't we get more skin cancer? If you're driving a car where you're still filling it up with gas, you know, I ask people, do you stand upwind or downwind of the pump? Because if you smell the fumes, you're actually downwind and you're breathing in toxins that will mutate your DNA in your lungs. But how come we don't get lung cancer more often, right? So these kind of things I that we're- I love the smell of gasoline. <laughs> well, you know, uh, or you know what, here's another one. The smell of a new car, which a lot of people love, right? Like yeah. that, that sort of that rich Corinthian leather kind of smell that is actually, th those are actually off-gassing, yeah. right? So, uh, or, or fresh or fresh paint that a lot of people sort of just, you know, kind of, it's associated with something good. And the bottom line is that our body is, knows how to resist itself. And so I talk about, you know, what's been discovered in our five health defense systems that mm -hmm. keep us from getting sick more often. Right. Will you take us through those? I know it's angiogenesis, which is your primary focus, or previously your primary focus. I'm still, you know, I, I run the Angiogenesis Foundation, which is a not-for-profit, and, and, you know, this is where, I, where the starting point was. So I became very interested about 25 years ago as a researcher, I'm a vascular biologist, and also as a physician, in thinking about, you know, something very different than my colleagues were. Most people try to figure out how to look at one disease and dive really deep and you know they go a mile deep and they're an inch wide so to speak I was very interested in what are common denominators of disease what links diseases together because when I you know when you think about it and this is how where my mind was cancer was such a terrible disease and you know we're always told if we had a little more money a little more research we'd actually be able to find the cure mm -hmm. and I realized that how much money was being spent on cancer research we, we got to the moon long before that, and we had that to show for it, and yet for cancer research, it's difficult to actually look at the, the, the return on investment. And it's not because of uh, brains either, uh, because so many smart people are looking at this disease. And so I thought, if it's not money or brains, what is it? Maybe it's approach. And so I thought, rather than look at what makes 
diseases different from one another? How do you what what do they share? Maybe we can pull the bow back and send a single arrow across common denominators. So angiogenesis was my starting point because angiogenesis is how the body grows blood vessels, our circulation, 60,000 miles worth of, of blood vessels packed inside our body. And they bring oxygen and nutrients to everything to keep us healthy. Not enough blood vessels, we get into problems like heart attacks and strokes and nerves dying. Too many blood vessels, it, it causes, feeds cancers, mm-hmm. causes bleeding. And so that was where I started and I realized that the body has to really keep this defense system perfectly tuned. You know, it's kind of like a, an engine of your car. If you, you know, maintain it, it's going to be perfect. And that's how you, how you get the smoothest ride through the, the life, you know, the health of your life. Beyond angiogenesis, there is stem cells, which, you know, we hear a lot about stem cells, you know, for your joints and aching pains. And, you know, I've been involved with developing stem cell therapies as well. But the amazing thing is that your body has stem cells and foods that you can eat actually can prompt those stem cells to come out. Microbiome, healthy gut bacteria is a t- popular topic now. We realize that, you know, we used to call ourselves human, and but in fact, we're about half, 50% of our existence is actually bacteria, mostly living in our gut. In fact, there's a term called a holobiont, mm-hmm. H-O-L-O-B-I-O-N-T, that refers to a collective organism that's made up of other organisms. And that's what humans are, actually. We're human cells, and we're a lot, ton of bacteria mixed together. And we used to think bacteria were bad, right? So you talk about the past and history, the plague, you know, bad pneumonias. Well, it turns out that bacteria are good. In fact, most of the bacteria that we encounter in our bodies are good bacteria. So what are we doing with ourselves with this crazy use of antibiotics? And, and how can foods actually help nurture and feed our good bacteria? Our DNA, more than the, the code of life, it's actually a protective mechanism against aging mm-hmm. and the environment. And finally, our immune system is more powerful than we ever thought as a defense system because we now know that even someone in their 80s or 90s, like President Jimmy Carter, or other people who are quite in their elderly years, if, if they've got cancer and you can give their body, their immune system, a chance to work, it can wipe out all signs of cancer. And so we're just looking at re- revisiting what health actually is, but using the latest cutting-edge knowledge from science and biotechnology to define that. You don't need to wait for biotechnology. Foods mm-hmm. can actually activate and boost our body's health defenses. Right. And then you sort of, you break them up into, what do you call, this was such a fascinating list, the Grand Slammers, not to jump ahead, but it was like some things that I sort of knew, like walnuts, but then like mangoes, oh yeah, nectarines. Well, you know, the, the, the amazing thing to me as I was writing this book is seeing there, there are more than 200 foods, most of which I like to eat, yeah. that actually activate our health defense systems. And so... My message is really a little bit of a different take than most people who talk about, most doctors who talk about food and health and wellness. No doctors talk about food and health and wellness. (laughs) Very few. More need to. (laughs) And, you know, and I think when it comes to food and health, like there's so much shame, guilt, and deprivation. Right. And fear associated with food. And my message really is that when you look at the evidence, it turns out that some of the foods that we really love and that are, you know, date way back in our cultures, uh, there's more than 200 of them actually help our boost our body's health defense 
systems. And uh, what you're referring to is, uh, I call them grand slammers. So if you've got five health defense systems, what are some of the foods that actually activate, you know, fire all uh, the engines uh, for all five health defenses? And, you know, one of my favorites are mangoes because I think they're amazing tasting foods, uh, but they activate, they help your circulation, they prompt your stem cells, they feed your microbiome because of the fiber, you know, the stringy fibers and yeah. the mango, like they, your bacteria, gut bacteria, love that. They protect your DNA and they actually help your immunity as well. So, you know, how can you resist something that tastes that good, that is also good for you. And then is there anything, I know you're not into deprivation and you'd rather tell people what to add than to take things away, but are there things that you wish people would eat less of? Look, all the data out there shows that eating a plant-based diet is good for you, not because it's a new idea, it's a really old idea as we started talking about the beginning. But I will tell you there is something that is also so clear that people shouldn't do or should do as little as possible. I mean, it's kind of like a, a health sin is actually processed meats. You know, if you happen to eat meat, if you choose to eat meat, I would say, you know, choose wisely and don't eat too much of it. Eat the good quality meat. But the one thing that is clear, clearly harmful is processed meats. So industrialized processed meats that, you know, have been manipulated. So they're, they're not even regular meat anymore. The World Health Organization classifies processed meat as a carcinogen. And so I think that, you know, that's pretty clear what that means. This is a small question, but within the fruits, like I'm assuming you want to eat them fresh and not dry. So it turns out that I think you're right, that that fresh foods are always best. Organic is always great because you don't want pesticides, which are just another insult right. or assault to your body and that your health defense systems have to be stressed over. Sometimes dried fruits are not so bad because they've got fiber, yeah. for example. And sometimes, you know, thing, other processes that we've, traditional processes like fermentation, also actually good for your food. Oh, yeah. I saw that in the back, like just tons of kimchi, right? Everyone should eat tons of kimchi. Well, you know, so kimchi is <laughs> the Korean kind of version, which I love the taste of. Uh, there's a Chinese version called pao chai, sauerkraut. Yeah. Is sort of the European version. And so, you know, every old culture actually has some, they found their way, you know. And now what we're doing is kind of discovering why the past was so important. And I think mm -hmm. that, that that piece of history is something that's going to forge our future. Yeah, no, and I love that because it feels so sad the way that we have sort of pushed aside all those centuries of wisdom or decided that we've somehow come to a new like level of being that that negates everything that came before like there's there's sort of been this dichotomy which has never made a ton of sense like modern medicine and ancient wisdom like never the two shall meet or that one needs to reject the other well you know yeah exactly those schisms are kind of ridiculous you have you know, Western medicine versus Eastern yep. medicine or allo, uh, allopathic medicine versus naturopathic medicine. To me, look, I, I was trained in the traditional medicine sense using diagnostics and tools and drugs and surgery. And I still believe strongly in that because there's so many people that can be helped. But I think in the future, you know, the people who are practicing, quote, alternative medicine are the ones who are only going to be using drugs. Yeah. That, you know, in, in the future, like, I think we're going to just, I, I'm all about flipping things around. I think in the future, all practitioners are going to be actually incorporating not only the tools that we have for medical research, but they're also going to actually be involving diet and lifestyle because it's so comprehensive. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. So you can choose to be alternative if the only thing you want to use are drugs. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And we, you know, we we talk to a lot of functional doctors here and are super interested in their approach too because it seems to be the best of both worlds, like testing, genetics, plus food and lifestyle factors. And I know you address this in the book, but most medical schools, and maybe this is changing, you would know better than, than I do, but typically there's very, there's like 19 hours of nutrition. Yeah, or, or even less. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think only 20% of medical schools even have a requirement, and those that do have about 19 hours on average. You know, and, and look, the excuse that is given is that there's just too much information, 4,000 years of knowledge, you know, scientific knowledge to pack into four years of med school. But in fact, you know, if you think about the journey of a medical student who's going to become a doctor, if they're not exposed to what, how they should sleep, how they should eat, yeah. um, how they should manage their stress, they're not going to be able to walk the walk, and so they're not going to be able to talk the talk, and so then patients suffer. So I think really helping young medical students, young doctors kind of ramp up their knowledge is going to be the, one of the most powerful ways for us to help our public health. We'll get back to William Lee in just a second. Detox month is all wrapped up at Goop, but I'm still trying to keep things relatively clean and our food team is always looking for the highest quality ingredients in every season to work within the kitchen. And that includes the bar cart. The team has developed a number of cocktails using Kettle One Botanical, which is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no carbs and no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. There are three Kettle One Botanical varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. And they all make for really fresh tasting cocktails. If you're looking for inspiration, see the goop recipes for sumac, salty dog, or the peach and flowers, or just grab some fever tree soda and mix a botanical spritz. You can order Kettle One Botanical on drizzly.com to try it out yourself. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Balance can be elusive. I work at finding it every day, and a lot of days I don't get it quite right. Sakara is a wellness company that was founded to explore how we can create a healthy balance in various aspects of our lives. They believe that with balance comes clarity and freedom, and that this can all begin with how we feed our bodies. Sakara believes in the ancient healing power of plants, eating vegetables that make up every color in the rainbow, selecting good fats, and paying attention to nutrient density in your body's own intelligence. Their meals are designed to nourish and support a healthy mind and body. Sakara offers an organic nutrition program that provides fresh meals, teas, and supplements. It gets delivered right to your door with no meal prep required. And you can customize your weekly schedule to best fit your lifestyle. All of their meals are organic, plant-based, gluten-free, dairy-free, non-GMO, and contain no refined sugar. To try Sakara's organic meals and functional supplements, head to sakara.com goop. Right now, you can get 20% off of your entire order by using code GOOP20. That's S-A-K-A-R-A and use code GOOP20. Back to my chat with William Lee. So growing up as a, a hospital kid, my first job was, well, my first job was working in my dad's office, typing his dictation and filing patient charts which is probably in violation of all sorts of laws. And then I worked in the hospital delivering trays. 
and working with, I don't think it was, it was a dietitian. I wasn't working directly with that person, but they were the one who was dictating the diet of the patients. And then obviously I, I ate in a lot of hospital cafeterias and from the vending machines as well. And that whole system, I mean, even as a child, I was like, I don't understand what's happening. These people are so sick and we're real jello, like jello is our best option. Don't forget artificially colored jello. Artificially colored <laughs> jello. And just the, the food was disgusting. I mean, and I know that that's having given birth twice in hospitals, I know that it hasn't really evolved or changed. How, like when, when is the hospital industrial complex going to sort of retool the way that they think about healing and nourishing foods and he feeding physicians and nurses and yeah. nurses assistants. Well, look, I mean, the system has to change because everything that has been done is unsustainable. Yeah. Unsustainable to wait for disease to strike and then try to throw the kitchen sink at sick people when we could have prevented it. Unsustainable to be able to put everything into an electronic medical record and then, you know, hide that data and tell everybody it's safe. It's unsustainable to do drug development only as our only mode really for trying to figure out the solution to illnesses when, you know, really a lot of the the architecture of health begins when we're much younger. Yeah. And so we kind of have a system that is uh, designed to capture train wrecks, you yeah. know, or to clean up the highway after a 20-car pileup, right? And the, the bottom line is we need better traffic patterns, we need better on-ramps, and we need to be able to help manage the flow of our health throughout life. And, and I think that, you know, for me... What I think is that there's so much confusion about food and health, yeah. and people are concerned about all the mixed messages. And what I say is that the same science that is used to develop medicines can help us create structure and reliable data, trustworthy data, when it comes to food. And that's really how I... I'm approaching what I what I eat and what I like to do and how I recommend uh, how people should live. And by the way, a little aside is that I've always felt that life, you know, this is why I was telling my patients, life is for the living. You got to really enjoy. Yeah. And so anything with diet has to be sustainable. You have to you have to you can't hate your life. You can't hate your food. You have to actually lean into it. And and if you can find out of the list of more than 200 foods that I put um, in my book, Eat to Beat Disease, if you can find something you love and start with those foods you already like, you're ahead of the game. Right. And then you can kind of build from that. And the idea is, is not, as you mentioned, deprivation-based, but additive, right? Like just finding ways to shoehorn these foods onto, right. onto your plate. And I, you know, because there's five health defense systems, and most of us encounter food roughly five times a day, kind of say a breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a couple of snacks. You know, what I say is that if you can actually pick five foods every day that activate your health defense systems during the times you're encountering food, you are literally feeding your health. You mm -hmm. are um, boosting it. And if you spend most of your time taking care of your health defenses, then every now and then, you know, look, uh, you might want to do something you just really feel like doing. It might not be that great for you, just mm -hmm. like anything else in life, but that's okay. Your defenses are largely strong. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the healthiest way to do this is, you know, rather than kind of get all militant about our health. I mean, you know, I, I, I truly respect the people that have the discipline that can actually live on only one way in a very structured box, you know, day in and day out over a period of time. And if they can maintain that for their whole lives, more power to them. But most people, and I think probably most of uh, your listeners, 
they're human. They're like, man, you know what? I, I tried that. It doesn't work for me. I can't mm -hmm. stick to it. And what I'm saying is that, you know, if you go to some of the healthiest communities around the world, these so-called blue zones, right? Mm -hmm. These are people where they live to a ripe old age, including over to 100. They're eating whole, fresh foods, mostly plant-based. You know, they eat some seafood, and they don't eat a lot. And, of course, they have all the other healthy things that go along with a healthy lifestyle as well. Now, portion control is so hard. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, so this is the other thing is that more is not more when it comes to our health, right? I mean, think about it. Just even something like as logical as exercise, you get onto a, you know, you get onto a bike, you know, riding regularly and getting regular exercise is fantastic. But if you, if what you did is you put five hours on a bike every day, like you would actually start to wear out, wear down your body. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, people who do ultra marathons, when we've studied their health, they wind up actually, uh, when they're training, they wind up getting to an optimum. And then just before they actually get to their performance level, they're starting to just be on that verge of getting too much exercise, getting from, you know, a lot of exercise with lower, uh, good exercise with lower inflammation, too much exercise raises inflammation in your body. And so, you know, more isn't always more, just right, and maybe just a little bit less mm -hmm. when it comes to food is what we all need. So what, what are your thoughts on weight and food? Well, I mean, look, body weight is actually one of the biggest concerns that everyone has, right? So, mm -hmm. and there's so many things that, that affect our body weight, our genetics, obviously. Food is, you know, kind of like clearly something that can actually make somebody who's likely to, who's, uh, has a tendency to gain weight a lot worse. And you can take a, somebody who's pretty thin and, and you can actually also bulk them up if you eat too much. But a lot of other things also affect weight. I mean, sleep affects weight, stress affects weight. And it turns out that there are some foods that you eat that you can eat and it'll affect your gut bacteria and your gut bacteria can actually help you control weight as well. There's an interesting series of studies I write about, one of which is taking bamboo shoots. Right, so pandas eat bamboo. Uh, people should not go into the forest to go pick bamboo because it's a little toxic. But if you boil the bamboo, which is how it's mostly prepared in Asia, you get this kind of a salad-like delicacy. It's filled with fiber. That's what. That's why pandas like it. And it turns out that like that fiber in the bamboo actually changes the gut bacteria, and the gut bacteria help you lower, better process your fat and gain less weight. And so you know, there's all these things that. So it's not just that eating stuff makes you gain weight. Some things that we eat actually pr could probably make us lose weight. But it has always seemed to me like an imperfect measure like impossible to know really like how much you're supposed how much are you supposed to weigh i know there are bmi measurements yeah. but it all seems so arbitrary it is arbitrary i mean you know and, and like we like to simplify oversimplify i think in our society give me a number what yeah. number should i hit or what's my range but you know if you take a look at even bmi it's different in different parts of the world the bmi the ideal bmi in asia you know is substantially less than the one in america and you know and that's that's really not a fair it's, it's not fair to measure who we are mm -hmm. by numbers. Right. I think that, you know, our bodies will have their own set points. We're going to actually fluctuate around them. And by the way, there are people who are real thin who are very unhealthy. Yeah. Because their, you know, health defenses are wrecked inside their body. And so there's, there's no doubt that it's not good to be overweight for sure. But just being skinny is no guarantee. And, you know, the thing is, if you take a look at uh, something basic like clogging of the arteries with lipids, right? Mm -hmm. There's plenty of people who are 
uh, rail thin that have super high blood cholesterol, bad cholesterols, and their hearts are clogged. Mm -hmm. And so people don't see that. That, That's something that the medical community actually sees. And so no guarantee that just because you, you know, can fit into size, whatever, that that that's a marker of health. There's so much more. And that's what I'm saying is that we're beginning to really uncloak what health actually is. And it starts, health starts from the inside out. Do you think that that in the relative future, we'll be able to go and sort of measure these markers of health during our annual physical? Well, look, I think, you know, if you take a look around you, you see all these things like the Fitbit and, and, you know, um, using your phone to actually track your sleep and all these wearables. That's the beginning. And I think it's kind of a technology play. I'm a, I'm, you know, I have some of these things and I think they're really cool. But in the end, you know, I'll tell you where I think the future is going to be. We're going to be able to use a breath test. You know, we can, if a, if a state trooper can actually, you know, pull you off to the road and have you breathe into a tube and figure out if there's alcohol, something that you consumed, then I can tell you right now there are, there's research going on to actually being able to take the same kind of breath test to look for what you ate and also to see how your health is actually functioning. So that's going to be in the future kind of like a biomarker for health based on a breath test. Another huge source of data that is going to be in the future is literally what's in a toilet mm-hmm. because we um, flush it away every day. Lots of information about how healthy we are from the inside out. And so imagine a future where we actually have a floating laboratory that whenever you, you use a toilet, you know, it can take a butt print and actually know exactly who you are, Bluetooth <laughs> it to your phone or to your cloud, and it will actually tell you what you ate and how you're doing from the inside out. So, you know, I, I think those are not wearable, obviously, but those are other dimensions um, that are, go way beyond what you get in a doctor's office today. And some of them can be at home. So wild. So can you take us, when you think about the five defense systems, can you give a couple, a few examples, maybe two examples per category from a food perspective that you think all people should add? Sure. So I first discovered that a food could cut off the harmful blood supply feeding cancer from a research study done in Japan where they found that farmers who were eating soy, mostly soy, actually had a angiogenesis inhibitor, meaning something that would cut off the blood supply um, growing tumors in the body um, in their urine. And it could only have come from the, vegeta- the vegetable matter that they were eating, most, which is mostly soy. So it turns out that we now know what's in soybeans, say substance called uh, genistein, powerful right sizer of your circulation that can cut off the blood supply feeding cancers. I gave a TED talk about this uh, in 2010, and uh, it's really quite striking. And so, you know, there's this controversy about soy and breast cancer. It turns out that at the end of the day, every single big study that's ever looked at the consumption of soy and breast cancer has shown women who eat more soy live longer, even if they have breast cancer. So this is, this is where the evidence overturns the urban legends and belief systems. So another kind of um, interesting food that's an angiogenesis inhibitor is tomatoes. Again, a little controversy around it. Is it related to the nightshade? There are lectins in it. You know what? I, I can just tell you what the data shows. A study of 36,000 men called the uh, Health Professionals Follow-Up Study showed that men who ate two to three cups, uh, servings of cooked tomatoes, each serving about a half cup, 
That's like not hardly, hardly enough you put on a pasta, okay? Had over a 29% reduction in the risk of developing prostate cancer because lycopene found in tomatoes cuts off the blood supply feeding prostate cancer. So again, you know, these are human studies that are very convincing because we, we know the lab stuff, we know the research, um, and now we're actually seeing it born out in people. Yeah. So that's a, a, an example of an angiogenesis inhibitor. Mm-hmm. And there are some foods that actually can grow blood vessels um, as well. So if you want to grow more vessels for your heart to feed your heart or muscles, if you're an athlete trying to work out, you want to be buff and ripped, it turns out there's a natural substance called ursolic acid. And where is it found? In fruit peel. Mm. Apple peel, for example, or pear peel. And so this is another reason why to get organic, because a lot of the pesticides can stick to the skin. Yeah. But if you eat fruit and you have the peel, not only do you get the fiber from that, uh, and you get some extra goodies, um, but you get this orsolic acid that can help your muscles grow and feed your heart. Next health defense system is your stem cells. So amazingly, it turns out that chocolate, dark chocolate, cacao, dark the dark kind of chocolate, like 75% or greater, can actually mobilize your own stem cells. And these stem cells can actually help create better blood flow and regenerate your heart from the inside out. So we grew up, you know, with our kindergarten teachers telling us that starfish and salamanders can regenerate and people can't, people, humans can't. That's wrong. We do regenerate from the inside out. And so there was a study showing in men in their 60s who had heart disease that if they drank two cups of hot cocoa a day for 30 days, and the hot cocoa was made with like dark chocolate, they would double the number of stem cells in their bloodstream. Wow. And they would double the effectiveness of their blood flow when you actually measure it. So these are human studies that are being done that I write about. And so, you know, another reason, you know, to love chocolate, perhaps, but it's got to be dark chocolate. And chocolate is, you know, itself is a confection. So it's got some sugar and dairy and all those other kind of stuff. Go for like sort of the hardcore, the nibs and stuff like that are really great. Microbiome, you know, is another defense system. It controls our immune system. It even controls our brain. Turns out that there is a good, healthy gut bacteria called Lactobacillus ruteri. This is this is an amazing story. That normally used to be found in most of our guts, usually in the colon, and then after around the era of antibiotics, it started to disappear, not surprisingly, from our guts. But moms, when they're pregnant, around eight months or so, their uterus sends a signal to the colon and basically tells the bacteria, hey, you know what, we got about a month left, so get ready. And what the bacteria, this lactobacillus ruteri does in the colon, they send a signal to blood cells called neutrophils, and it's kind of like calling an Uber. And so the blood cells wing by, these bacteria get into the blood cells, hide inside the blood cells, they hitch a ride through the bloodstream, so you're not infected, you're not septic, and these blood cells go all the way up to the breast, and they dropped off the bacteria near the breast ducts. Wow. Okay, so this is literally like an Uber caused by the gut bacteria, and then when the baby's born, this healthy bacteria gets injected into the baby's gut so that mom gives her goodness to the baby. Well, research has shown that this bacteria reduces the risk of developing breast cancer and colon cancer, and it boosts the immune system. And it also, this bacteria also um, tickles the brain to be able to release the social hormone oxytocin. That's the feel-good hormone. That's the hormone that comes out during orgasm. You know, and so again, we're just, just starting to pick out what, what's going on with the microbiome. 
So how do you get uh, lactobacillus ruteri? Well, there's a probiotic that you can get that as a lactobacillus ruteri. Lactobacillus ruteri is also the bacteria that gives sourdough bread. It's tangy flavor if you get real sourdough. So again, you know, it's interesting to think about. It's also, by the way, uh, used to make Parmesan cheese, the Parmigiano Reggiano. Mm-hmm. And so again, a traditional approach to making even cheese. Actually, you know, how do these how do how do the ancients actually figure this out? When they were making, you know, old breads or old cheeses, they they in, they intuited that this was something good for this. So another amazing fact about the microbiome: uh, one of the biggest medical breakthroughs today is immunotherapy for cancer, where rather than give chemotherapy, we're giving new medicines that actually don't kill the cancer directly, but they rip off the cloak that can- our cancers are using to hide from our immune system. And when the cloak is ripped off, the camouflage is gone, our own immune system can find the cancer and take it out, right? So it turns out this immune therapy can literally be curative. I write in my, uh, my book, my mother actually had metastatic uterine cancer mm. and was you know, given no chance. And we got the tumor, we did all the genetic sequencing and found the smoking guns, got her on immune therapy, and she had a complete response. So after three treatments, all of her cancer disappeared, never wow. had chemo, okay? doing well today. Here's the thing. If you take a look at all the people who are receiving this kind of fancy immunotherapy, less than 20% of people respond. Mm. So why is that? Well, one of my colleagues in Paris found out when they when she looked at two, 200 patients who were actually getting immunotherapy for cancer, that the only difference between people who responded versus people who didn't respond was one bacteria in the gut. Wow. If they had that bacteria, they lived and responded. If they didn't have it, they didn't do well. So it's called Acromancia mucinophila. I read about it in the book. You can't eat that as a, as a probiotic. The only way you can get Acromancia to grow is with food, pomegranate juice, like the Palm Wonderful stuff. Yep. Okay, That'll actually cause your gut to secrete the mucus that this Acromancia bacteria loves to grow in. Pomegranate juice, conquer grape juice. So again, this is not food as medicine or food um, instead of medicine. This is food and medicine. And this is a whole other kind of dimension. It's like we have to combine the best of all the worlds as you were talking about earlier. So that's an example of sort of just a few examples of, um, of the microbiome DNA repair. Look, I mean, one of my favorite things that I like to talk about is DNAs are a code of life instructions, but it's a lot more than that. It protects us from the environment. One of the big protectors is called a telomere. It's yeah. like the plastic cap at the tip of a shoelace that protects the shoelaces from getting worn down, protects our DNA. And it turns out aging will actually shrink our telomeres or shrink the protective caps. So an amazing thing is that coffee, black coffee, so like the cream you put in a coffee doesn't do anything to it, sugar doesn't do anything to it, but the actual coffee itself from the coffee bean will actually not, not only protect that telomere, it makes it grow longer, reverses cellular aging. Yes. So again, this is what research is starting to discover is that we're able to, I mean, look, drug companies are trying to figure out how to make medicines to do these kinds of things. But Mother Nature has already beat everybody to the punch in figuring this out. And then finally, the immune system. Here's some like really cool things that uh, your audience might like. There was a study done in young, healthy people getting flu vaccine. So it's, you know, it's the fall, winter People are getting sick, so you're going to get a flu shot. In this case, they got a, a nasal spray. And uh, so you give a little bit of a kind of like a like partially killed flu into the nose. 
And what they did is they gave a group a uh, smoothie made out of broccoli sprouts. Okay, just two, two cups of this a day. And then they gave them the flu shot, and they had 22 times more of the immune response if they got the flu shot plus a broccoli sprout shake. Wow. It's amazing, right? So I mean, how could you not think about using something so delicious that actually can help a medicine protect you even better? And then here's, here's like my sort of something I found so surprising is oysters have been found to boost your immune system as well. You know, oyster meat actually um, has proteins in it that actually can jack up your immune system. And not everybody loves oysters, although I happen to really love oysters. Not everybody lives by the ocean. And even if you do, you're probably not shucking oysters in your kitchen. Um, but you can get the same activity with oyster sauce, which you can find in the grocery store next to the soy sauce. Right. Right? So the research actually was done with oyster sauce that had been cooked down. So I just gave you like a couple examples of the five health defense systems, but a couple examples of foods that, you know, a lot of people like. Yeah. And that to me is what's exciting is that we can actually finally light up our lives and light up our health with things that we naturally gravitate for, towards. And even if you don't, if you're not interested in the science, you should just know that the science is there to back it up. Well, thank you for being here. It's fascinating. What did you have for lunch? I need to know. Ah, what did I have for lunch? <laughs> I had a small portion of whole wheat pasta with um, fresh sautéed cherry tomatoes, which is packed with lycopene, with a little bit of olive oil and a basil leaf. That sounds delicious. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. William Lee. For more on him, head to goop.com slash the podcast or drwilliamlee.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-I-A-M-L-I. And make sure to grab a copy of his book, Eat to Beat Disease. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.